If you're new, I'm Jamie, and I'm one of the pastors here. It is my honor and my privilege in this new year to continue to do what I love to do most, which is to invite you to point your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. We will pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago in Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, there is one in the pew in front of you. And you'll find our reading today, Luke chapter 9, on page 867. Chapter numbers are the big numbers, the verse numbers are the little numbers. We're going to begin reading at verse 37, and I'll read down to verse 50. We will pray for the Lord's help on our time together, and then we'll get to work seeking to understand this passage. Luke chapter 9 beginning at verse 37. This is the word of the Lord. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him, so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Let's pray. Lord, we bow ourselves before you, humbly asking that you would come, that you would give us your Holy Spirit and that you would grant to us understanding, and that you would write the truths of this passage of your word <clears throat> upon our hearts, and that you would grant us faith 
and belief. And that you would give us strength to follow you in the ways you would have us. To the praise of your glorious grace. Amen. In February 1964, Sonny Liston was boxing's heavyweight champion of the world. Liston was dominant. Some considered him unbeatable. And that month he was scheduled to defend his title against a loudmouth, fast-speaking 22-year-old from Louisville, Kentucky, by the name of Cassius Clay. Cassius Clay, or Muhammad Ali as he became later known, had declared in no uncertain terms that he was the greatest boxer who had ever lived, even wrote some poetry about it. Well, Ali would shock the world when he defeated Sonny Liston decisively in seven rounds. And after this, he paraded around the ring, shouting to everyone, I am the greatest. Muhammad Ali had blazed a trail for a certain kind of braggadocio which has now become rather common in sports. For greatness in the sporting world is defined by one's ability not just to win, but to stack wins. And to not just stack wins, but to dominate your competition. But it wasn't Muhammad Ali who invented braggadocio. And it is not new, it is not even reserved for the world of sports. For brashness and boasting and impatience and line drawing and ridicule of competition is the common language of business and politics. And sometimes, to our great shame, even the Church of Jesus Christ. And this is because pride and self-promotion has been woven deep into the fabric of the human heart. Each person, each, each person even here is guilty of this and has suffered its effects. That we have sought to show the greatness of ourselves by our distinction, by our domination, by putting others down in order to prop ourselves up. And through the incarnation of Jesus Christ, through his life and death on the cross, he demonstrates true greatness. He shows us that true greatness comes by patient, self-sacrifice, investment in others, selfless care for the lowest and the least, and by uniting fractions. Jesus humbled himself and took the form of a servant. And in doing so, he taught us what greatness truly is. He taught us that the greatest among us are the servants. And if the Lord is pleased to unite our two churches into one, well, I can't think of a better text than the one we are about to consider. The gospel writer Luke 
puts together four events in the life of Jesus Christ to teach us about greatness. And this is the big idea this morning. Imitate Jesus Christ, who reveals His greatness through long patience, through self-sacrifice, through humble care, and through creating unity. Imitate Christ, who demonstrates true greatness through long patience, self-sacrifice, humble care, and creating unity. Well, I trust that we'll see this as we work our way through these four events. Four events, four points. I'll repeat them as we go along so you can take notes if you like. On to the first. Jesus Christ reveals true greatness through long patience. Jesus Christ reveals true greatness through long patience. Let's pick up back in verse 37 and read down to the first part of verse 43. On the next day, so Luke connects it to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, so we'll come back to that. On the next day, when he had come down from the, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and then suddenly cries out. It convulses him, he foams at the mouth, it shatters him and will hardly leave him. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they couldn't. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. So as I said, Luke connects this passage to the day before. He connects this event with the event that came before. And since it's been a couple of weeks since we've been together, let me set the context. Luke says that they came down from the mountain. So who are they and what is this mountain? Well, they is Jesus and three of Jesus' disciples, Peter and John and James. And the mountain is the mount which we call the Mount of Transfiguration. So you'll remember from a couple of weeks ago, Jesus took John, Peter, James, and he went up the mountain. And while he was praying on the mountain, the Bible says that he was transformed. He became dazzling white before them. Luke says that Moses and Elijah appeared and they spoke with Jesus about what he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem, namely the cross. Luke says, a cloud appeared on the mountain, and God the Father spoke from the cloud and said, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And on the mountain, Peter and John and James saw the glory of Christ. They heard the voice of God the Father. They witnessed the law and the prophets folded into Jesus. They saw the divine glory of God the Son. They saw that He was the point and the purpose of all the law and all the prophets. They saw that He was the point that everything that God had done and that God was doing and that God would do. Everything was about Jesus. This was a a life-changing experience. And then they came down from the mountain in more ways than one. 
after conversing with Moses and Elijah, after hearing his father affirm him, Jesus comes down from the mountain and immediately he's met with the tragic effects of sin. A confused crowd, a desperate daddy, a demoniac son, and nine disciples who have no idea what they're doing. Talk about coming down. Be like going back to work after time off of, for the holidays and coming back to a pile of work that now you have to work two weeks worth of work in one week. And you just wonder if Jesus coming down off the mountain just sort of was like tempted to go back up the mountain. And just said, let's start this whole thing over. But he didn't. He rolled up his sleeves and he got to work. Luke describes the desperation of this father. His only child, his son, is oppressed by a demon who throws the boy into these epileptic seizures where he is convulsed and he foams at the mouth. Luke says that the demon shatters the boy, a word that means being crushed, he's seeking to destroy him. In fact, from the other gospel accounts, we find that this demon wants to destroy this boy. He keeps throwing him into fire and into water. So can you imagine the desperation of this poor father? <clears throat> A demon is destroying his boy. And so he turns to the only people that he knew to turn to. He turns to the disciples and they can't do anything. The disciples are of no help. And this should catch our eye. Because you remember back at the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus gave these same disciples power and authority over all demons when he sent them out to preach in Galilee. These boys had cast out demons before. Why couldn't they cast out this one? Well, from Jesus' answer in verse 41, from the other gospel accounts, it was because they lacked faith. Mark's gospel adds prayerlessness to the list of reasons. Had these men forgotten where the power to drive out demons came from? Had they started trusting in themselves, in their own abilities, or perhaps in their own track record of doing the work of God? Well, who knows the reason, but their faith had shifted off of God and onto something else. And you should know, brothers and sisters, we can do the same thing. If the Lord has granted to you victory over some sin in your life, victory over some evil thing, it is really easy to begin looking to your own strength, to your own willpower, your own track record, as it were, the next time that temptation comes. It's New Year's Day. Some of you are making resolutions. Make your resolutions. But above all, resolve 
not to trust in your own resolve to keep those resolutions. Because your faith can never be in yourself. Faith cannot be in your own power to resist temptation, no matter how good your track record may be. Put no faith in your faith. No matter how many times an airplane has flown successfully, past successes don't justify the pilot cutting the engines. The moment that your confidence comes from anything other than the staining grace of Almighty God, it is lost. And you know, whole churches can do what the disciples did. The Lord may have granted some fruitfulness, numerical growth in the past through whatever means, be it a program or some kind of outreach. And if the people are not careful, they begin to think pragmatically more than prayerfully, trusting that it was the program that gave the growth rather than the Spirit of God. How often have you seen churches try to reverse engineer a work of the Holy Spirit? It never works. It never works. Because our faith is in a person, not in a program. Faith in anything else is not faith at all. And this is why Jesus says to the generation in front of him, Oh, faithless and twisted generation. It's a phrase that Jesus pulls from the law, from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Moses uses this phrase to describe the generation of Israelites that, as Pastor Brent mentioned earlier, God redeemed, pulled out of slavery in Egypt, brought into the wilderness, so they witnessed God deliver them from slavery. They witnessed God provide for them in the wilderness. And when they came to the promised land, they saw the giants, and they refused to believe that God had the power to give them victory over the giants in the promised land. And Moses calls them faithless and crooked, faithless and twisted. And apparently Jesus sees the same faithlessness, the same crookedness in his generation that he saw back in that generation. And so he says, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? Does anyone sense frustration in these words from the Lord? Oh, that the Lord would have mercy on us for how often He might have said the very same thing of you and I. For how how often have we been faithless, prayerless? How often have we failed to step out in faith because we couldn't see the future and refused to trust that God would provide for us then? How often have we drawn a sense of security from the wrong things, trusting in ourselves and our own wisdom? And God has borne with us still. Well, give credit to this desperate daddy. He turned 
to Jesus and begged Jesus to look at his son. That's just good parenting. A few things will strengthen your faith than being a parent or going through suffering, and this man is going through both. So parents, grandparents, follow the example of this desperate daddy and pray for your children. Pray for them often. Let them hear you pray for them. Not just praying for them at nighttime. Pray for them, pray with them. When they're going through any difficulty, any hardship, any suffering, pray for your kids. So the demon took a final swing and missed. The Lord stepped in. He rebuked the unclean spirit. He rebuked. He cast it out. He heals the boy and restores the boy to his father. And Luke notes, all were astonished at the majesty of God. The majesty of God is, of course, seen in His power over the forces of darkness. The majesty of God is seen, of course, in His compassion for fathers and for demoniac sons. But I wonder if that's not Luke's point. We've seen that before. I wonder, because of the placement of this event in Luke 9, whether or not Luke wants us to see another element of the majesty of God in Jesus Christ. It seems to me that Luke wants us to see the majesty of God in the patience of Christ with His people. You understand that God might have displayed His greatness by choosing a people who would keep His word perfectly and without fail. He could have. But instead, this God chose a people who, the Bible says, provoked Him. He chose a people for Himself that later the Apostle Paul would say He had to put up with them in the wilderness. One facet of the diamond that is the greatness of Christ is His long-suffering, His patience with His people. For all the myriads of their sins, His mercies are new every morning, more reliable than the sunrise. God is faithful to His Word. He is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Faithfulness. Peak greatness is the glorious grace of God in sending His own Son to do for His people what they couldn't do for themselves. And to every desperate daddy who says, This is my son, the Father says, This is my son. And that brings us. To the next way that Luke shows the greatness of Jesus Christ. Let's pick up reading in the second half of verse 43. While everyone was still marveling at everything that Jesus was doing, Jesus turns to his disciples and listen to what he says to them. It's very emphatic. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. 
Luke says they didn't understand the saying. It was concealed from them so they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him. So notice that while the crowds are marveling at everything that Jesus is doing, he's reminding his disciples of what he's about to do. He's saying, let these words sink into your ears. You see, because for Jesus, the cross was central. And he would not let his disciples forget that the cross was central, even if for now they couldn't understand it. But one day they would understand it. One day they would understand the cross was the point of everything. One later disciple would then go on to write, I've decided to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. You see, the greatness of Christ is not mostly displayed in delivering demons out of men. The greatness of Christ is mostly displayed in Him being delivered into the hands of men. Christ displays His greatness in His self-sacrifice for the sake of sinful men. We know His greatness because He gave His life, not because He thumped His chest. Not because He paraded around the ring saying, I am the greatest. The language of verse 44 is intentional and important. Jesus would be delivered into the hands of men. Which ought to beg the question, who delivered him? Pontius Pilate? The angry mob? The Roman soldiers? Yes, of course, all of those. But behind all of those... The voice that spoke from the crowd, from the cloud. Romans 8:32, he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Same word. Behind all those other things was the Father sending his son to purchase and redeem a people for himself. Behind all of those was God the Son obeying the will of God the Father. To be the price that needed to be paid. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian. Might I borrow some words from the Lord Jesus. Let these words sink into your ears. This man, Jesus Christ. God from God. Light from light. True God from true God. Came down from heaven. Put on flesh. Was crucified and suffered and was buried. And on the third day rose again. And ascended into heaven. Where he is seated with the Father. And one day he will return to to judge all mankind. And you should pray. That God would have mercy. And open your eyes so that you would see the greatness of Jesus Christ. Friend, when you turn from your sin, when you trust in Jesus Christ, confessing Him as your Lord and Savior, your sins will be washed away. The judgment of God which you deserve will be laid in the grave with Jesus. And eternal life will be granted to you 
the same life that now lives in the risen Son of God. Before leaving this building today, talk with someone. All of us here would love to have a conversation with you about the greatness of Jesus Christ in saving sinners like us from our sins. True greatness is displayed in the patience of Christ, in the self-sacrifice of Christ, and then third, through the humble care that he showed to the least and the lowest. Jesus Christ reveals true greatness through his humble care of the least and the lowest. This is verses 46 to 48. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the one who is great. Behold, in verse 46, the stupidest argument in the history of the world. These men are standing in the presence of Jesus Christ, feet, literally feet away from incarnate deity, from the uncreated God, the creator and the sustainer of all things. And they're fussing over which one of them would win in a game of Mario Kart. It's inane. But as ridiculous as this argument is, you, you can imagine how it came about, can't you? You've been around young men before. They just got rebuked. Because understand that when Jesus said, faithless, twisted generation, they were among that number. And they were insiders. They should have known better. They just got put in their place. So they're a little sensitive. And those of you parents who've disciplined your children, you kind of know how this goes down. Someone gets spanked and there's a, there's a period of silence for a little bit before they start blaming each other for what went down, right? So you can imagine how this went down. They were probably arguing with each other because of what went down at the base of the mountain. What was your fault? You're the one without faith. Like, I had plenty of faith. You remember Galilee? I cast out plenty of demons. I didn't have any troubles then. Please, I cast out ten demons before you cast out your first demon. You can see how this just kind of bounced off one another. And the Bible says Jesus perceived, he understood what was going on in their hearts. He knew the reasoning of their hearts. Actually, the same word Reasoning is the same word as argument in verse 46. Jesus knew the argument of their heart. Their verbal argument was really a heart argument because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. James 4, chapter, one, chapter 4, verse 1 says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war inside of you? Well, in 
this passage, we find ourselves again, don't we? I wonder if you've ever compared yourself with another Christian. Have you ever looked at someone beneath you and felt contempt? Have you ever looked at someone above you and felt resentment? Have you ever resonated with any of these thoughts? She's so immature. When's she going to get her act together? Their kids aren't even Christians. They must be terrible parents. Well, why should the church help that couple? They're just lazy. He doesn't deserve that promotion. Their life is such a mess, God is definitely judging them. Well, I'm afraid that every Christian at some point or another will have thoughts like these occupying a space in their heart. And you know what it is? It's arguing over greatness. It's the same thing the disciples are doing. It's the Pharisee in Luke 18 boasting, thanking God that he's not like other men. He's better than them. It's our, it's our heart doing what Cassius Clay did in the ring. Bouncing up and down and screaming, I am the greatest. Well, church, Jesus knows the reasoning of your hearts. And we would do well, each one of us, to pay close attention to the object lesson of verse 48. Jesus so merciful, so patient with these boys, so gentle with these boys, takes a child and puts the boy by his side. You wonder if it's the same boy he just delivered. And he says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. It's a very strong object lesson. For children were the lowest members of society. In Roman society, you received, you welcomed people of equal or of higher social status than your own. And so you would do this because you would increase your own social standing by associating with people who had higher social standing than your own in order to work your way up the social ladder. So to receive a child was pointless. A child offered you no social benefit can't advance your own cause, your own notoriety by welcoming children. And so Jesus grabs one of those children and sets the child by his side, and, which is significantly set by his side. And he says, receive them. He's teaching the disciples, this is greatness. Greatness is caring for the least and the lowest, welcoming them. Receiving them. Caring for them. Greatness is doing for others what only costs you and benefits them. Which is what Jesus did. He revealed his greatness in that he came down from the mountain of celestial glory to be with us. To suffer for us. To give himself for our benefit. 
Jesus gave everything and we gain everything. That's greatness. We, who are the least and the lowest, have been received by him. Now, having been received by him, we have the privilege of receiving others, of showing his greatness to them. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Greatness is serving. Do you want to be great in the kingdom of God? I hope you do. Greatness in the kingdom of God means glory to Christ. One way God brings glory to Himself is when you serve others like Christ. When you consider others more significant than yourself. When you take a sincere interest in the well-being of others. When you serve them at your expense for their benefit. That's greatness. In so many facets of human society, we make these arbitrary assessments of others. We identify those that we perceive will offer us social benefit. And we, pers- we look for those who might offer like a social liability. And we seek out those who will benefit us. And we draw a circle around those that we deem to be insiders. And those who are inside stay inside. And those who are on the outside are looked at with suspicion. That they're either dumb or they're dangerous. And this is because human beings, no matter how modern we become, are so tribal, factional. We convince ourselves that our way of doing things is the only right way of doing things. And anyone who does anything like different than we do it is either dumb or dangerous. And this sort of thing must have occurred to John because... Of what he says next. He outs himself. Well, he outs everyone. But he outs everyone in outing himself. Which is where we'll spend, we'll wrap things up here. Verse 49 and 50. Jesus Christ reveals true greatness in creating unity. Verse 49 and 50. So John speaks up. John answers. This is an answer to what Jesus said earlier. John answers. Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him. He doesn't follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. Men seek greatness through distinction, through domination, by being on the inside. And the smaller the inside, the greater the distinction. We draw these lines. And Jesus shows his greatness by gathering a dissimilar people to himself uniting them to himself without distinction. Understand that the disciples' problem with this unnamed exorcist is not that he's driving out demons in Jesus' name. They had no issue with that. Their issue is that he didn't follow with them. So evidently, this fellow is doing the work of God. It's just that he's doing it without the twelve. And so Jesus corrects them again. The point here being that Jesus Christ reveals his greatness in unifying different people into himself. 
Because He is what unites us. As Pastor Brent said earlier, He is the peace between us. Galatians says that those who have been united to Christ, for them, there's no Jew, there's no Gentile, there's no slave, there's no free, there's no male, there's no female. We are all one in Christ. He has broken down the dividing wall that separates Christians. It is Jesus Christ who unites us. Jesus Christ is what unites us. Jesus Christ is the line that divides. There's still a line. It's not that there aren't lines, it's just that He draws the line. And the line is Him. So there there are those who are in Christ, and there are those who are far from Christ. Those who have been united to Christ, we have been given the privilege to set aside our personal differences, to lay down our selfish ambitions, to work together, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ, to gather those who are far from Him into Him. We put Christ first, ourselves last, and together we unite people in Christ. Jesus Christ was patient with you. He gave Himself for you. He cared for you. You were the lowest, you were the least. And he came to you and united you to himself. Whether the Lord is pleased to bring our two churches together or not, in 2023, reveal the greatness of Christ in the ways that he did. By being patient with others. By giving yourself sacrificially for their good. By looking to care for the lowest and the least, and resisting all forms of tribalism, factionalism, for he who is lowest among you is the greatest of all. Be the least. Be the greatest. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that we have sought greatness in our own way, in our own strength, in whatever way we perceive would bring praise to ourselves. We've sought distinction for ourselves by sowing division, self-promotion. Lord, and in so doing, we've diminished the greatness of Christ in our own lives. Our pride has hidden his light in our lives. We have sinned. Please forgive us. Father, would you make Jesus big in our eyes in 2023? Do not hide yourself from us. Come down to us once more and show the mercy that is new every morning. And give us your Holy Spirit, faith to believe and to trust in you in all things, especially our reputation. Let us seek the glory of Christ in revealing his greatness through patience, self-sacrifice, humility, and hard-fought unity. All for the glory of your precious name. Amen. Please stand to your feet for the assurance of pardon.
Towards the end of our services, we always look to Scripture, the promises of God, that He has heard us in our prayer of confession and is offering us an assurance of pardon. So if you're placing your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, rest assured that these words are eternally true. The Lord is a God who is merciful and gracious, that He is slow to anger, and that He abounds in steadfast love and faith.